Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Thanks for joining us again here at the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. We've got a great show for you today with author Stephen Arian. He is a fantasy author publishing his eighth book, or he's published eight so far. I guess this will be his ninth book coming up. What a great fantasy author. We talk all about kind of where fantasy is now and in 2023, what uh, fantasy authors can do to keep their readers, uh, you know, going on adventures with them to, you know, exciting new worlds. It's so much fun. Uh, you're going to love this interview. Be sure to follow us over at storycraft.cafe where you can stay abreast of uh, more author hangouts coming up and you can join in the conversation. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. Now on to our show with Stephen. And we are live here in the StoryCraft Cafe. Uh, I am your host, Hank Garner, as always. And today I am super excited to have an old friend join me for another show. Stephen Arian is one of the most prolific uh, fantasy authors that I know and (laughs) someone who writes books that I just thoroughly enjoy. And Stephen has a brand new series that is launching next month and mm-hmm. i thought this would be a fun thing to chat about you know Stephen, when when you make these um schedule these youtube videos ahead of time they make you put a title and and i'm i'm terrible at guessing what a title should be but um you know i just guess that we'll talk about the the modern state of of yeah. fantasy and um the judas blossom your new mm-hmm. book coming out uh <clears throat> next month this is a, a bit of a departure from the books that you have written in the past. Um, yeah. First off, new publisher, mm-hmm. um, new sort of subgenre, if you will, new characters. Mm-hmm. What was the what was the inspiration for this new series? Yeah. So, <clears throat> as you say, I, uh, it's been a, it's been a while since we talked. It's been a few years. So I did um, six books with Orbit, all kind of right mages and wizards and all very upfront and in your face and very kind of lots of stuff going on um then i moved to angry robot and i did a duology which is over my other shoulder there right there anyway (laughs) the the coward and the warrior and that was a uh two connected stories that were reimagining the modern uh version of like a of a fantasy quest i wanted to start with that basic trope and then do something a bit different and Sure. talk about other things and use that as a vehicle to do that and i'm constantly wanting to challenge myself and test myself and do something different and so then i thought about historic fantasy and i started looking into it i'd been watching some things reading some things thinking about it and it's these ideas stew in your back of your head for sure. years at a time and this was ticking over and i pitched it to my publisher and my agent and they were very keen on it Um, And so then, yeah, we're kind of off the races with this new historic uh, fantasy trilogy. And 
without a doubt, it's been the most challenging series I've ever done in my entire life, which is good, but also really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, most people, um, I, I think, when you're not uh, an author and you're not publishing, the the idea is that it's like most things in life, the more you do it, the easier um, it becomes. The problem with that is that when you start a new book, um, everyone has uh, the, the, the slate is wiped clean. The, mm -hmm. the, the blank page is the great equalizer. Um, no matter how many books you've published or your first one or your ninth one, uh, you know, in your case, you mm. start with nothing. This is and it. it, that is, you know, it, it, it becomes, uh, I think it becomes more difficult the longer you go because you, you have seen what you can do and mm. you want to keep stretching yourself and you want to take on new challenges. And we've all, uh, you know, read authors that, you know, kind of maybe rested on their laurels and uh Yeah, you say like you it know, feels the, like they phoned this one in and I'm sometimes thinking, are they just were they having a bad a bad year? Were they just not feeling it and they wrote it because it felt like it should, it was under contract and it's that thing of Or maybe know, they to, maybe they took up golf, uh you know <laughs> <laughs> But after like thirty books and you're thinking, Oh yeah, let's do another one of those or something. It's like if, it, if it's constantly changing or you're doing a new series, I get it. Like how people like Lee Charles have done like 24, 26 Jack right. Reacher books. I love those books. I'm slowly working my way through them. But equally, it's the idea of, oh, another Jack Reacher book. What else? Can, can he go into space? No, because that's too far. So, you know, how do you do it? With fantasy, right. at least we have the option of it's a brand new world. It's brand new characters, it's a brand new setup. And we get to make it all up and start over again. The challenge is we get to make it all up and start again. Because as you said, no one knows sometimes who you are ever until you have a household name. So the fact right. that this is my ninth book, some people are like, who? They're just finding me for the first time. <laughs> um, it's true, like John Gwynn, when he brought out his Hunger of the Gods and Shadow of the Gods, people suddenly discovered him. And it's like, yeah, 10 years in the making, John's been putting out awesome books every year for the last few years, you know, like, oh, yeah. okay. Then they go back and read his other stuff. So. I've no doubt some people will read Juice Blossom and go, has this guy written anything else? And they'll go back and see like, oh yeah, eight other books since 2015. <laughs> That's what he's been doing. Oh, we should look into his stuff. Please do. Well, speaking of um, overnight successes, 10 years in the making, um, mm -hmm. you published your first book, 2015. 2015. Yeah. But you had been writing since around 99 or so, yep. if, I, if I remember right. That's right. Um, so, um, you know, and, and people will see that first published book and go to the bookstore and, oh, where'd this guy come from? He just lucked up and they have no idea the, the years of, mm. of toil that, that go into it. Um, when you, uh, going from 99 to 2015, mm -hmm. um, how many books did you write in that time? Or, you, you know, th this is one thing I, f I find fascinating, Stephen, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some insight into why yeah. i'm asking this sure some people um have a story that they want to tell and they finish it and they try to get it published and it doesn't go anywhere and they just go back and they dismantle that book and they rework it and they just keep working on that story over and over and over again until they find out what was wrong with it or you know put the polish or maybe wait for the market to come around Yes. To to where this book is, because sometimes it's just a matter of 
the book is great, but the market is not ready for it, you know, mm. and you just, these things have to line up. Other people, uh, take Brandon Sanderson, uh, for instance, wrote 13 books before he got published and one wouldn't sell and he would just, you know, pitch it in the closet and start another one. Mm -hmm. Um, which one of those camps did you fall into? Same as Anderson. Yeah. Trunk novels. So <clears throat> in 99, I was a much younger man. Um, and I was writing, <laughs> we all, yeah, yeah. This is it, 20, 20 years ago. We're, we're, we're older than we look. Um, yeah. I started young. I started writing novels young and I thought it was good and it was as good as I can make it at that time. But with every book, I got better and I learned more. And over the years, I was, you know, going to events, listening to agents, editors, publishers, trying to glean as much information about how they did it, how they got there. And, you know, I learned some stuff from them. But the end result, it boiled down to you write a book, you make it as best as you can, you work on it. And if it's not good enough, you do another one. Because you're right, I've seen people going around events and they've got this one book that they had for 20 years saying this is the one this is the one and that belief is good but also it can blind you to the fact that it might not be the one but the next right. one you write could be the one so i'd written about nine books i think um i tried different genres i tried crime i tried different techniques so i'm a planner by by just how it what it works for me i plan all my novels not everything but most of it a framework yeah and i thought okay maybe it's because i'm not being spontaneous enough maybe i need to shake <laughs> it up a little bit so i wrote a book completely by the seat of my pants finished it and it was awful it was terrible but i thought i can fix it in the edits and no i couldn't so that one i didn't even try to send it out on submission it was just not worth it but for all the other ones i'd write it get friends to read it i'd edit it over and over, and over again i'd send it out to agents get rejected, rejected, rejected. Once I've gone through the list, that's it. There's nowhere else to go. And back then, self-publishing isn't what it is today. Right. So I never considered it as an option. Now it's totally different. Everything's changed. But then it wasn't really a thing. So I just get my head down, put that book in the trunk, and go on with the next one. Try different genres, tried crime, tried horror, tried sci-fi. And it just, some things clicked, some things didn't. And gradually by constantly reading, constantly writing, I found something that hit the right agent at the right time, that then hit the market at the right time. So I'm, I emailed and contacted my agent in 2013, and my debut came out in 2015. So, you know, th sort of four, 13, 14 years of, of trying before I got anything, wow. really, and then two extra years before it came out. So, yeah, it took a while. I'm so glad you brought up the um, the topic of... of self-publishing or indie publishing as we mm -hmm. like to call it nowadays and and you're absolutely right it is 100 a viable um option for a lot of writers and and I, I personally know a ton of writers that that is um they have a very successful business that they run as an mm. in, as indie publishers yeah um one thing though that i think is uh that has kind of gotten lost a little bit is um in traditional publishing, like you said, there that wasn't a viable option at the time. So you put the book in a trunk and you try it again. Yep. A lot of people now, because indie publishing has become easier, well, I'm never say that it's easy, but it's easier. <laughs> easier um, yeah. You can take that book that that maybe didn't catch the eye of an agent and you can publish it. And 
you know, sometimes you can find uh, an audience for that book and maybe it's a sizable audience. Maybe it's not. Um, but there was a certain pause uh, that that happened uh, with a writer when the book didn't sell and you were forced to do some self-reflection and mm -hmm. some, um, you know, ask yourself those hard questions about the book. Yeah. Is this book good enough? Um, it, it might find an audience. It might sell thousands of copies. It might sell 20 copies, but am I best served by having this book out there? And mm -hmm. I think a lot of indie authors have had to wrestle with this, that, you know, they, they rushed to publish a book and now it's out there on Amazon and maybe a year or two later, they're like, well, I really wish I wouldn't have published that book because I'm, I'm so much better of a writer now than I was then. Yeah. And, you know, and we we all get better as, as we go and, you know, everyone's haunted by their back catalog at some point or another. Um, but do, do you have any opinions about that, about, you know, because you are traditionally published <laughs> and you have, you know, gone through all those steps. Um, how do you see kind of people that have made the other choices and maybe the ups or downs of it? I think the the, the biggest difference is, so So if I go back and look at some of my old, older books now, I think I'd be quite embarrassed by them. I think there'll be things that I wouldn't like. It might be that the core of the idea is salvageable that I could use to tell a new story, but I don't think any of the older books or could be reworked by themselves because I wasn't the same kind of writer and I've learned a lot more. Yeah. So you're right. If you, if you self-published those books and they go out there and then like in five years time you go, yeah, that's, that's not my best. You can now pull them off the shelf and take them off. Like I can't do that with my old books. I can't take right. them off the shelf and rewrite them and stuff. I know some of the bigger authors can like Stephen King, you know, he put out the green mile in six small chunks and it went out. I read it at the time. And then when he came to the collected version, he's like, there's some little mistakes here and there's little bits and pieces and yeah. he, re he tweaked it. Stephen King also tweaked like the Dark Tower, the first book. And, you know, there are other people like that that can do it. But if you look back at some of the older authors, so one of my favorite fantasy authors is David Gemmell. And his first book was sort of published in the early 80s. And if I go and read it now, like if he was still alive and he read it, I'm sure he'd be like, oh, yeah, this is a bit, it's things I'd, I'm not happy about. <laughs> but equally, I now look at the books that he wrote 20 years on from that, how good they are, how much he's learned. So it's one of those things that if someone goes back and reads a debut, you have to remember what era it was, because that'll affect some of the content. Um, and also was that that first person's that person's first book or their 10th book or their 20th book and look at how they've progressed. So I think self-publishing is difficult in some ways because you won't you not only have to wrestle with those things yourself you have to be your own business man business woman you decide everything you run everything as a business and if you've got the time and the energy and the resources and the money to do it then that's fantastic um but the, the other flip side is that it seems to be that people want self-published authors to put books out more often more regularly right. traditional is typically one book a year from an author for most of us that's kind of it but yeah. for self-published they're like two three four books a year and if you well, if you write a longer book, that's fine. Um, shorter books in certain genres work fine. So it's really, you still have to know the industry. You still have to know your genre. You still have to know your readers. You still have to know your competitors. So it's it's not just a case of, of just banging the books out as a self-published author. It's a lot of business stuff. 
Yeah. As a traditional published author, I don't have the time or I don't need to wrangle with some of that stuff because it's taken care of by other people. Yeah. Um, so there, there are pros and cons to, to both. I always say this. I never say one's better than the other when I talk about it on my YouTube channel. I say to people, it's what path you want to go. If you're a stay-at-home mom and you've got three kids and you get to write for like five hours a day, have you got time to do all the business stuff on top of it? Or do you want to, you know, have that to someone else and they do it and try the traditional route. So it's it's fitting in with your lifestyle now as much as your your existing resources and then use your skill and your talent and your desire to tell stories on top of that. Do you think that um, the the quick nature of publishing um, and you talk about how some indie uh, published folks are putting out multiple books a year and mm. if you go to the Amazon store, there are just thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of titles in any particular genre. Um, I, I still have books that that I read, you know, in my teens and 20s mm-hmm. that mean a lot to me. And I, you know, have them on the shelf here behind me and I'll go back and reread them um, often, you know, once mm-hmm. once a year, once every two years or so. And and they've kind of become part of who I am. Um do you, do you think that 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 the the nature of publishing now is um squashing some of that do do you think that that we hold on to books and hold them in with the sort of esteem that we used to is is are there too many books in publishing now for for that to be um as much of an issue i think people can find more because there's more books and there's more books that are tailored to very specific subgenres. If you're looking for a specific thing, you yeah. can find it a lot easier now because of the internet. You can ask the question, and someone somewhere has read that kind of a book if it exists, and they can tell you. And that particular book could be very, very particular and very special to a certain group of people. So that in 20 years, they will look back in the same way as I look back on the Earthsea books. Right. And just, you know, how important I've got the special hardback ones there that with the <laughs> illustrations because they mean so much to me. Right. But, Someone growing up now might read it and be like, I don't connect with it. I don't get it in the same way. I don't understand it. And they read something else that's more modern, that's similar, that has, you know, that someone's closer to their background, upbringing, whatever it might be. So I I think it's easier to find touchstone books now than it was before, not just because of the internet, but because there are that many more books being published. But on the flip side of that is it's harder to stand out it's harder to get noticed because there are a lot more distractions now than there were. I keep saying this to some people, friends who've got kids, I have to explain to them what we did before the internet existed. And they, <laughs> they don't really get it. They think we just kind of like sat around playing in the mud in the garden. And, and Right. Like, I'm right. like, no, we go to the library and read right. I'm Like, yeah, but what else would you do? <laughs> well, we watch TV. Yeah, but what else? I'd go outside and play. Right. Oh, you know? <laughs> so it's, I, there's pros and cons. At the end yeah. Today. I saw a video that you made um, uh, a little while ago, um, and you were you were talking about um, because we didn't have the internet when we were younger. Um, the, I think you were talking about um, your discovery of the Dragonland series, yes, um, with uh, Weiss and Hickman, mm-hmm. and um, and how you didn't know this whole connected world and 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 what they were doing, and you know. Uh, all of that, but that's a hundred percent true. When when you discovered a series, like there was there was something magical about 
yeah. you know, unearthing these uh, these little nuggets of information and and oh, this connects to this and and you know, it, it was I I don't want to go back from living in 2023. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> no, but. but there was something great about there's there was a sense of discovery when we were younger that that you just don't have now because information is literally at your fingertips yes yeah. we as i said it was hard back then it was hard to find anything the only re- the way i would know if a new book was coming out was i'd walk into the bookshop every couple of weeks and suddenly there's a new one on the shelf i i have no idea right. it's they're gonna be there i haven't had the press release the email the tweet the instagram <laughs> right. post the youtube videos the booktube was talking about i've none of this existed the only yeah. way is you couldn't magazine. pre-ordered a year ahead of time yeah like you know it's magazines weren't as easy to get where they, they did exist but it wasn't is it was once a month and things change so yes it's you're right there's that discovery phase of unless i don't read a bunch of stuff in the industry which i do anyway the only way i'd have that that spark of discovery is walking into a bookshop start looking down the shelves and turning books over and reading the spine. And I get that sometimes, like there's stuff I've missed. Or someone says, have you heard of this book? I'm like, no. And the next time in a bookshop, I see it and go, oh, that's what it is. And I turn it over and they go, oh, that sounds interesting. But it's not the same. It's not the same kind of that rush of book fours come out. I didn't know it was going to be a book four. Oh my God, I thought it ended a trilogy. What? Uh, you know, it's just that that childish delight, really. I think some of that's gone because the information's all there. It's yeah. all there. Is it, uh, it? It would seem that it's uh, much easier to be a fantasy author when you have a decidedly English accent like you do. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the rules. You have to do English that, accent and a cat. And a that, cat. That, see, to, I'm I allergic two, to cats. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm allergic to cats. So I you guess. Be a sci-fi author then and have a dog. Well, That's you know, okay. there you go. You see? Um, the, um, your, your um, previous eight books, um, had uh more of the um the feel of um what we would consider traditional fantasy of the sort of um european uh flair uh informed by european culture Mm -hmm. uh in a lot of ways um your new series um that uh, uh that the judas blossom is the first book in um is takes its inspiration from Persian culture. Um, yes. Well, tell me about uh, why you decided to do that, and um, you um, you have Persian heritage. Uh, yes, if I'm I do. Yeah, a, a, Iranian. Um, wh- what made you want to connect with your culture in that way, and and how difficult was it? Um, you know, we're we're also steeped in this European tradition of fantasy. Mm. Was it difficult to kind of stretch out in these new cultures and um, kind of build a world that that maybe people aren't? Um, I, I think for some fantasy series, because we're so used to these types of settings, it's easy to kind of fall in because yeah. we expect certain tropes and we expect yes. societies to be built in a certain way. Um, talk a little bit about just branching out. Yeah, so you, you, you're my my dad's from Iran. Um, I was born there. My mum's English. Um, I lived in England all my entire life. I've still got some family out there, but I haven't I haven't been there in you know forty years. Sure. Um, in the last, I'd say ten years, probably we've maybe maybe fifteen, if I'm being generous, we started to see more non-traditional fantasy stories. Now they did exist because um, I, I spoke about, as you said, Weiss and Hickman, and growing up, I read things like. 
Rose of the Prophet trilogy that they wrote in the um, 80s, which mm -hmm. was completely set in a pseudo Middle Eastern setting. You know, that was quite interesting. The fact that the Earthsea books, all the characters in it are people of color. It's never a, an obvious thing. It's never overtly mentioned, but that's part of the story. So there were things that I was seeing growing up that have echoes of things from my own mixed heritage that I could see. Even if it was someone like um, Tannis Half-Elven from mm -hmm. um, the Dragonlance books, because he's, right. he's both human and elven. So he's from two totally different warring cultures that don't really get on sometimes. So there was, there was bits and pieces. But in the last few years, we've had books inspired by certain African countries. Um, you know, Evan Winter's done a sort of pseudo-African one. We've mm -hmm. got Sara El Arifi, who's doing one based on her mixed heritage. We've had um, Shelley Parker-Chan doing She Who Became the Sun based upon her, you know, Chinese heritage. And there are lots of others coming. And there's more that I haven't mentioned, of course. So it seemed that it isn't that fantasy fans are bored of that other kind of style. It isn't that there isn't room for them. It's just that having other stories out there with people who have links to certain cultures is becoming easier or more welcome, I guess, from an audience who don't mind trying something different, like to find out about cultures and customs and countries they've only read about or seen on the TV or don't know much about. So when I pitched it uh, to my agent and then my publisher, they were very on board with it. The challenge then becomes, <laughs> because it's historic fiction, as a historic fantasy, sorry, it's not historic fiction, historic fantasy. There is a fantastic element in it. It's not as big as some of my others. There aren't massive wizards and things running around or dragons. It's very much set in Earth in the 13th century. It's, the story starts in 1260. And all of the main tentpole um, events in the first book are based upon historic facts. They actually happened. Now, the timings are slightly off, and the people of who was there I've had to massage. And also sometimes like a war will start and then three years later it finishes. I can't really have that in a book, the whole of it, because right. otherwise I'd just be like, the war starts and then it went on for a while. <laughs> War's over now. And I've just kind of summed up three years in a few you know, chapters or paragraphs. It's like, you can't do it that way. So sometimes I've had to move things around because I want to tell this cohesive story that makes sense to the reader that has satisfying payoffs um, right. Some of the characters are based upon real historic people. Some of them are completely fictional that I've made up. So all of that was going on. At the same time, I'm introducing readers to a part of the world they've never probably seen, they've never heard of. They certainly probably don't know much about 13th century Persia. I didn't until I started doing some research. Um, so I've had to be careful. I have to try and find the balance of I want to introduce as much information as I can so it feels different, that it feels somewhere you've never been before, that it's it's something that people can learn a little bit about as they read the story and enjoy it without it feeling like it's just a history book saying, yeah. here's 12 pages about what kind of food they eat or this kind of custom. So I'm trying to find that balance the entire time of setting, painting the picture so the, the readers get a clear image of what I'm trying to tell them in their mind of the setting, the place, the food, the people, the dress, all of it. But also I want to carry them forward on the story. And that was clearly tricky. So I, when I said this was the most difficult series I've ever written, I'm not, I'm not joking. I had to <laughs> rework it and rework it and, and, you know, get feedback from my agent and my editor sort of said, you know, 
this is good, but it's, it's slowed the book right down here. You need to kind of move things on or find a way to introduce that information later. So I, after eight books and after, you know, eight years or so, I thought this is the right time to do it for me. Trying to do this on my debut, there's no way I could have done it. I mean, if I tried it 20 years ago when I was first trying to get, there's no way I could have done it then either. I've learned a lot by being in the industry, but also by going through the process eight times before this of pitching the initial idea to my agent, talking it through, writing a first draft, getting feedback, reworking it. So all of that, doing that over and over and over again in this traditional structure has taught me a lot too, that I thought, I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> Whether or not I've succeeded or not, that is the question. <laughs> we'll all find out next month, won't we? We will. <laughs> When you begin a new, uh, we'll say a new series, um, yeah. because um, books within a series um, will will share uh, certain of these um, touchstones. But do you first start thinking about the setting and the world, or do you start thinking about a character, or do you start thinking about a a plot that you will inflict upon some characters within a world? <laughs> and, a good um, word. <laughs> and, and yeah, and and a, maybe a a part B to that question would be when you started this series and whole new world and mm. whole new way of doing things. Did that sort of process of creation change? Yeah. So the the creation part probably answer that first is. I had to do a lot more research. There's some things, as I said, that are fictional and there's elements that I've introduced that are fictional, but even the fictional bits are based upon something that existed. I've kind of extended right. it to, well, what if, what if, what if? But the research thing was, was writing this book was very difficult in that I'd say, oh, and then they walk into a valley and then I'm thinking, okay, but what, what what's growing there? What kind of animals were there? I don't know. What was around in this century? I don't know. What were the trees like? I don't know. So every time I start to write something, I have to constantly stop and go back and be like, oh yeah, right, let's do some research to, to paint the picture, right, to get it fairly accurate. Um, so that was, that was difficult. Um, introducing people to a new world is, is always, always tricky. Um, I started with the setting and some of the characters, I think. I started, originally, I knew that I wanted to set it in Persia. And then I was sort of thinking, well, what era? And I'd been watching, a couple of years before that, the Netflix TV series Marco Polo, mm -hmm. which is, I think it's still on most places now. And that is set in uh, modern-day Mongolia and China, and it's about Kublai Khan. And there are lots of stories and books about him. So my book is actually set in the same era as the stories of Kublai Khan and Marco Polo, but the other side of the world, essentially. So, and this is the thing that part of the world in that period, there aren't many stories about. And as far as I can tell, this is the first historic fantasy series set in this place and in this time. Nice. So that's that was different. So I knew I had the, I had the setting, I had the timing, and I knew some of the characters would come in and I started doing research on who they were and I found certain gaps at one character, one of the main characters is not a spoiler because it is this um, history. One of the characters is a Mongolian princess called Kokachin. And she set off from Mongolia to come to Persia to marry the Khan who was ruling that area at the time. And Marco Polo 
traveled with her. Part of his job was to take her from a point A to point B. It took two years for the journey. And by the time she got to Persia, the person she was going to marry, the Khan, was dead. His son had then taken over as the Khan. So she married him instead. And according to history, three years later, she was dead. And we don't know much of anything more about her, really. There's little bits and pieces here, but there's almost nothing. So there's a huge black hole. There's a huge gap. So I thought, okay, there's an interesting character who's gone through all of this. Right. What happened to her? What could have happened to her? What was going on? You know, what? how would she feel from being forced into this marriage, essentially? And what does that make to a person? And but then other other main characters existed because they're based upon fictional people. And I didn't want to erase them. So I'm trying to make it historically accurate to a point, but also not. And then once I start playing with the timing and some of the big events that are going on, that inflicts some of the storyline already on the characters because I'm not changing too much of history. But then I introduce other wrinkles myself. So it all kind of came together. I started brewing it, the setting, the characters, the storyline, I added some of my own kind of like fantasy spice on top and mixed all of that in together. It sounds like I'm baking a cake, but it kind of <laughs> is in a way. It kind of is, yeah. Yeah. Stephen, does the um, the uh, modern, um, I'm trying to think of the words I want to use to to describe this, the, the mm. modern um, implications of a place, do, does that ever factor into the the fantasy um aspect or you know the historical aspect because if, if you say modern day iran um or or persia um mm -hmm. you know our mind first goes to the cnn of it all and um you know the and and this is a culture that um you know especially in the united states where our cultural memory is about 250 years long yeah. um you know and then you know you being in england um that cultural uh imprint uh is is much broader than ours mm. is and then you go to a culture like persia and it's even that much thousands longer of years old. Uh, yeah thousands of years yeah. old and um our the whatever has happened in the previous 100 years obviously is on our minds um mm. but that in no way um has any bearing on the the cultural impact of of this place so when you're dealing with a place that that currently you know um people have have feelings you know about what goes on in other parts of the world mm. um does that factor into the the mining of uh of this rich cultural heritage and the the politics of a of a place like that and, and what it was like you know 800 years ago 900 years ago you know as opposed to what we think of today does that factor in at all or are you just yeah. looking for you know great ways to tell a story it's it's on my mind because i can't think about it without looking at the news and seeing what's going sure. on with the protests and stuff now um it's, it's hard to separate it at times because it's it's so it's so evocative what you see in the news. All I wanted to do was try and tell an interesting story in a uh, quite unique place, I think, that has this long history that has you know thousands of years, as you say, of, of art and, and poets and history and culture. Um, and what I'm trying to do, which is reflected in today, is introduce people to a part of the world that they don't know much about, but also give them a glimpse of the kind of people 
that live there, the, the spirit of the people, the passion of the people, how warm they are, and the stuff you see on the news versus what the reality is. And I, I, I think the best example from the last few years, he's he passed away, of course, now, is Anthony Bourdain on one of his right. um, Parts Unknown travel shows. You go all over the world and see things and you think, I don't really know what this is about. And you watch it and think, that's that country's not like what I thought. He went to Iran, I think it was in 2014 or 2016, and he'd been trying to get there for years. And he finally went there. And one of the first things he said is, I've been all over the world. And I've never met such friendly people. Everywhere I go, people are saying, hi, how are you? They're, they're smiling, they're happy. And he says, there's stuff to see in the news and there's you know people who are in charge versus the people out in the street that are just trying to look after their family, go to job, go to work, you know, have a nice time. And so he got to see both sides of it, but he got to see some of the stuff that I'm trying to introduce, like the history, the culture, the food, because he's all about the food. He was, you know, all right. about the food. Uh, and so, Persian food is so good. So I do touch on that from time to time. <laughs> but it's things like that. So I'm I'm aware of, of what's in the news, very much so. And I'm trying not to talk about it. There's none of that in the book. It has to be within the era of which sure. I'm writing. So in, you know, in 1260, there's a lot of things that today we'd find quite abhorrent. The fact that, you know, slavery still existed and the trade routes and all sort of stuff and the way countries were invaded and all these kind of things happened and they were horrible, but it's a part of history. And I'm talking about history in that era, but also the people of that place who are the same people as they are today. So that's probably sure. the only real connective tissue, I guess. I don't talk about religion of today and the politics of today in that in that era well, it wouldn't be appropriate and in, in no not within the 1300s that yeah setting. And like yeah. someone said why would you have slavery You're like well if i'm trying to be as historically accurate as possible it's horrific mm -hmm. and it's barbaric and it's upsetting but it happened so I kind and of it was very much it. a part of daily life for lots and lots of people yeah yeah, yeah. definitely one of the things that we love about fantasy is uh, are, are the magic systems, and um, you wrote six books where mage is in the, it's title. In the title. It's, it's right there. In the title. You know, it's, it's very much about the magic systems. Um, the the Judas Blossom. Uh, this is historic fantasy, but it's yes. it's rooted in actual people and actual events. Mm -hmm. um, t tell me about the 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 magic systems or the the choices. Uh, that you were able to make or maybe were hindered from making by writing an, a historical fantasy. But we all know you love magic systems. I do. Yeah. Um, th so there are some historic books. I think it's Pierre Perval wrote a book about historic France and there's dragons on the front cover. So, you yeah. know, that while it's historic France, there's dragons. And it's like, OK, you accept it and you get on with it. This was more a case of well, the who wrote the fantasy on... series about the French Revolution, but there, there are so. dragons? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember um, the name of the series. Someone yeah, will know I'm, it and I'm, be shouting at us. Yeah, but, anyway. you know, so he said, but that was straight away, you knew this is what you're getting. It's an alternate version of history. Mine's more of, it's focusing on the history and the politics and the warring and the turmoil in the area. And there's some espionage. There is a hint of magic, but it isn't the focus of the story compared to what I've done in the past. I've done big, loud magic. I've done that. So there are no mages wandering around in this series. There are no fireballs and lightning bolts out the sky. There is something there. I don't want to say what it is because it kind of spoils it. But it's it's not something that takes over and becomes the whole story. The, whole, the story is the events and the people and how they navigate through all of these things that are going on. 
the magic is more like a whisper of something that happens around the edges. There's something happening. But even the magic system is based upon something that kind of exists that I've just kind of gone off to one direction and thought, that'd be interesting to see what I could do with that. Um, so it's not something I... So I did come up with it, but I started with something that's based in fact. So I, I didn't want to have huge events be radically changed by magic within my series. Like there's a huge war and a, a wizard just comes out and plop, you know, wipes out an army. Right. Like, oh, it's, yeah, if I wanted to do it, I could, but I, it's a bit, it's not as satisfying. It's not as interesting. I've, I've done that kind of very fantastical thing. So this is, it is fantasy, but the historic action, uh, aspect is very much front and center so less focus on the fantastic more focus on the people the world the setting and the espionage and the politics and the warring aspect because that's so prevalent in that part of the world and in that era right um i think we're most people are at least um a little familiar with um like the the Arabian uh, fantasy aspects and the mm -hmm. jinn and 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 uh, some of those um, magical things that that people can put in fantasy. Do you, uh, and, and I don't I don't know anything about Persian history much other than you know Bible stories from um, mm -hmm. <laughs> from Sunday school. Um, but um, are are there uh, you know fantastical tales like the jinn and 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 like what sort of things did were you able to uncover um that that you could weave in or you know pull from so that it's i grew up reading greek and roman mythology mostly norse mythology and as i got older and went through the library i read whatever i could find but it wasn't until my uh, 20s or even 30s that i came across persian mythology and the same sort of thing they have thousands of years of history with books with fantastical collections of stories and one of the best most known is as this one called Shahname which is by uh it's it's got all sorts of stories of characters and monsters and heroes and villains and nice. uh, giant rock creatures and uh, white demons and kings and so it's 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 there it's been stories that are thousands of years old they exist um I've borrowed little little bits and pieces, but if I'd written it based upon that kind of a mythology uh, rather than historic, it would have been a, a much more fantastical kind of stories, closer to what I've done before. So there are, you know, spirits and demons and things in Persian mythology. They all exist in a similar sort of thing. They're different names. Some of the stories feel familiar. So we're all familiar with Hercules right. and his great trials and tribulations. They have a similar character who uh, went through a number of challenges as part of his life before as when he become that he became this great hero so there are echoes all the way through that will be vaguely familiar to some people um it might be that in the future i do a story that leans more heavily into that and starts with the fantastical aspects um but this series has bits and pieces of things woven in i'd say woven in um you won't you won't see demons popping out the ground or, or giant rocks <laughs> coming down but i could do a series you know that starts with that kind of thing front and center again like instead of dragons it's 13th century persia but with giant rocks that everyone rides these huge birds that are part of their folklore you know oh that would be awesome it's <laughs> the awesome. next one no one's no one yeah. that one i'm doing that one next copyright <laughs> <laughs> 
your your previous series um quest for heroes uh mm. which was the warrior and the coward was a duology yes. um that was your first series that you wrote for bad robot is that right uh, angry robot yes a- angry robot i'm sorry, sorry. um <laughs> and the the new series um that the judas blossom uh is the first book of the nightingale and the falcon this is going to be a trilogy yes that's right yeah i'm currently writing book three now i'm i'm halfway through so yes, July for the next three years, these uh, these books will be coming out. Nice, nice. When you began this series, did you have a firm grasp on where book three was going? Most of it, yes. Some of it, no. <laughs> because the further you go, the more I, I obviously went into my own story. And while I'm still tugging on parts of history and weaving through certain milestones other things i'm ignoring more because i'm taking it in my own direction so i knew what the end point was i knew what i wanted to get to but sometimes i'd come to like a junction and think right now i could take the more historic approach or i could keep going on my own kind of route and how do i which how much do i borrow and how much do i make up so this third and also tying everything up all the characters all the storylines everything is a big challenge um but it's i'm getting there now i've got i keep kind of slowing down rereading tweaking what i've done making sure i'm happy with it and then moving forward to make it a satisfying uh, end of the trilogy but um yes diff- next next time i'm just going to do like a book about a boy wizard who <laughs> right. goes to find his the chosen one the chosen <laughs> something you know a lot easier let's just try right. that you know next time jeez well, after this series, do you do you think you'll return to this part of the world? Um, you know, has has creating creating a fantasy world out of the Persian culture does has has that you know kind of stoked the fires of imagination? Could you could you write one of those boy and wizard you know chosen one stories, but set, set in ancient in Persia? Persia? Yeah, maybe that's the kind of thing you know, leaning into the the more fantastical aspects and the. The magic systems and the the great myths from legend of all their heroes yeah. that they have you know that go back thousands of years maybe just as you say start with a, a trope that we all know you said in a completely different part of the world and off you go and it's never going to be what anyone expects right so it might be that that's something i could look at in the future but i think after such a research heavy project such a challenging project because i have to adhere to certain parts of history i didn't want to radically change things I need a little bit of a change before I'd come back to something like this. Um, it might be that I do another one a couple of centuries later because things would have changed. I mean, you, you get these people who would do a series and then they revisit it in like 20 years, 30 years on, the characters are older or the grandkids or whatever it might be. Right. I could jump like 100 years and, and then do the world would have changed again. I don't need to make it up. I can talk about some of the things that are happening again in 100 years time on from my story. So. I think there's room to explore if the readers enjoy it, if they want to see more of this kind of thing or more stories set in this part of the world. You know, I'd love to explore it and have the opportunity. But I guess it comes down to if they read it and if they if I build it, will they come? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, just just uh, just do another trilogy with Mage in the title. We'll all go. show up, yep. and you know, Persian we'll, Mage. That's the next the one. Persian <laughs> Mage. There you go. There you go. There you go. You heard it here first, folks. That's it. That's it. Uh, Stephen, I I'm so excited about the new book coming out. Um, we'll uh, we'll be sure to to boost it when it comes out. Um, it, for folks that are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you have done and will continue to do, where's the best place for them to find you online and, 
you know, sign up for the journey and, and go sure. along with you. Thank you. Um, I definitely go to my website. It's, it's Stephen hyphen arian.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Steve Arian. Those are the best places to find me really. I'm, I'm pretty active on my website and on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, but I don't really know how to use it, what I'm doing, but I'm there, <laughs> you know, pictures of cats mostly. Um, yeah, it's Twitter and my, and my website are the best places. And it's got all the information on all my previous series in which reading order, because people always ask, where do I start? What do I start with? So yeah, all the information is there. Um, yeah, new series starts in July, trilogy takes me through to 2025. Um, and later this year or next year, I'll start planning and writing something new. So busy, busy. <laughs> it, it all starts all over again. Um, <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> Stephen, it's so much fun to uh, to catch up. Thank you so much for joining. Thank me you today. for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Hank. I really right. do. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the Storycraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The Storycraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening. Thank you.